This is Unicorn Builders, where we tell the untold stories of the founders who've defied the odds and built billion-dollar companies. Here's your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines.io. Now, let's jump straight into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Arif Nathu, CEO and co-founder of Komodo Health, a healthcare technology platform that's raised over $400 million in funding. Arif, thanks for chatting with me today. Hey, thank you so much, Brett. No problem. So to kick things off, can we just start with a quick summary of who you are and a bit more about your background? For sure. So I'm on this incredible journey for the past nine years of building a technology company, but my my whole history, I would never have suggested this is where I would be, you know, years later. I grew up right outside of Houston, Texas and spent my days kind of volunteering in hospitals and uh, doing all kinds of kind of math and science things. I love science. This was, that was my passion. I went to college with the full intention of becoming a doctor. And, you know, I actually did that. I went to medical school. I thought I'd end up running a practice or having a career in academia. And something changed when I was in medical school. I got so fascinated by the way that technology and data were changing how healthcare was practiced. And I decided that I would take a little bit of time, figure out what it is that I wanted. I did a degree in public policy, got really excited about the intersection of policy and healthcare. And then through that experience, ended up as a management consultant. Um, and in that process, learned a ton about how healthcare actually ran. There's the theory that you learn in school, and then you get out into the real world and you just see the intersection of, of healthcare in the way that it's performed. And it just opens so many questions, and so many doors to, to doing something about it. I spent six years as a consultant, really diving into problems across life sciences companies, payers, and providers. And through that process, got really excited about building something that I thought could make a difference. Nine years later, we were on this journey uh, called Komodo Health. What does your family think about the decision to leave medical school? Have they accepted that? Did they see the company now and be like, all right, it all worked out. This is you know, good. Or do they still like secretly hope that someday you'll get your shit together and go back to school? <laughs> <laughs> well, you encapsulate the, uh, the Indian parent. <laughs> I think the Indian parent, the first generation that comes to this country wants their child to be a doctor. And, you know, I grew up in the 80s and 90s when that first, you know, kind of group of professionals came in. We're going to give our child a better life, you know, go get educated, become a doctor. Because no other career path, you know, could possibly be as prestigious as becoming a physician. I think it's really funny because at the age of like five, I think I really wanted to be a firefighter or a neurosurgeon. And my parents, you know, over the years revised the story so that I only wanted to be a neurosurgeon. And so I acted, <laughs> you know, my kind of career in medicine with the idea that I was going to enter and stay in medicine. But they've always known that I've been a huge contrarian in everything that I do. I always question things. I always try to dive into things that I, I find a lot of passion in. And I've always found data really fascinating, technology really fascinating. So when I told them that I was you know, going to a consultancy after medical school, but I was going to come back and do residency in two years, my parents were like, good, you're going to go back and do residency. We're all good. But two years later, when I said, I'm going to stick with this, they actually had seen how happy I was doing what I was doing. And, and they were super supportive. And over my career, it's really been my dad who has helped me and encouraged me to follow the things that I love in life and to follow the passions that, you know, I have, which tend to be very different than folks who have been educated in the same way. It's been a blessing for me to have their faith and their support and, and what I do. Was that scary when you left 
McKinsey, like leaving behind McKinsey to start a company? Like what was going on inside your head as you made that shift and made that transition? McKinsey doesn't train you to be an entrepreneur. In fact, it's not a a quality that is really embraced by the company. They talk about entrepreneurship, which is just code word for selling things to customers that they want to buy. Like the notion of entrepreneurship in the real world is I'm going to, you know, give you a spear and drop you in the middle of the Serengeti and say, good luck, have fun, you know, book, hunt, you know, not in that order usually, but (laughs) get things together, handle yourself. And you have no get a support network around you. Whereas I think a consultancy of their nature has, you know, hundreds, thousands of people that are there to support you in all aspects of what you do. I think being an entrepreneur is a very lonely existence and nobody trains for it by working at a place with, you know, unlimited resources and solving really, really big problems. What I loved about that change was just having to go through the mentalization exercise of really accepting what that would mean for me and like pragmatically how I would survive. And then on top of that, what it would take to actually do this well. I had a one-year-old at the time and you know, for me, that was a huge uh, leap of faith. But you know, I put some boundaries around it and said, if this doesn't work, I, I can find my way back into the workforce. And so I rested in that security, but it wasn't until I really shed all the expectations of society and people and things that I could truly embrace, you know, my role as a, as a founder. But that has been a huge part of our story and my personal journey through this. And two other questions I like to ask, and, you know, the goal here is to really just better understand what makes you tick and where you draw inspiration from. So first one, what founder do you admire the most and what do you admire about them? It's a great question. Actually, I'm going to say something slightly different, which is I, I love the founding team at, at Intel, Bob Noyes, Gordon Moore, Andy Grove. And what I take away from that, I mean, it's really funny, like in 1980, Bob Noyes, you know, would riff about how, you know, he was, everyone was worried that the integrated circuit is just going to turn all humans into morons, which didn't happen. But, you know, 40 years later, we have TikTok and, you know, generative AI and, you know, we're saying the same thing. So, you know, I don't think he predicted that, but I do think what's beautiful about that team is they all had very different management styles and skill sets. And if you read Andy Grove's work on what it takes to manage and the way he thinks about productivity and the way he thinks about the relationship between the manager and the employee, it's very different than the way Bob Noyce worked. And, you know, there were a lot of very fascinating differences in their styles and their approaches and their beliefs. And yet they created this incredible company that has lasted generations and has created so much value. And you think about what that takes as a team. And I'm I'm lucky to have a co-founder who sees all my blind spots, understands me really well. And between the two of us, we both have very different leadership styles and we have different ways of operating. But we we work really well together and we're able to make decisions that drive this business. And so for a lot of reasons, I feel like um, it's often the team and the quality of that leadership team that predicts success in the future. And and we've learned that through the way that we operate as both co-founders, as well as the incredible folks we each put around the table that, you know, helped us grow and develop and mature as a business. What about books? And you can't say high output management here. So I'll dig a a layer deeper. And I stole this from someone else, but they call it a a quick book. So they said a quick book is a book that like rocks you to your core. It changes how you think about the world, how you view the world. Do any quick books come to mind for you? I'm going to, again, share something very different, which was related to a question you asked me, which is how do you go from a McKinsey to starting a company? And 
a book that had such a profound impact on my own realization as an individual was meditations. Like Marcus Aurelius is like classic test. I read it like once every six months. And I'm sure people love this book for different reasons. And again, I'm not a stoic by any stretch of the imagination and personal life philosophy, but there are certain things that someone thousands of years ago ruminates on becomes like so much a part of how you operate. And I think the thing that I I love from just his writing and it's you know translated to this idea that like everything we hear is an opinion, not a fact. You know, everything we see it's a perspective, uh, not reality or not the truth. And for me, that resonates because everything I do is question, you know, the things that I think are obvious in healthcare and obvious to people. And yet I'm having the wherewithal to ask the questions, to push a perspective that's not accepted by market. And to believe that over time you can develop evangelism around it is something I think that's true to belief and belief and duty and like your responsibility to bring that to bear is important. So I love rereading that because I get so much out of it every time I read it. And as well, it's been a big part of my own self-discovery as an special leader and a founder. I'm working very hard at becoming more stoic. Uh, I think it's hidden in the camera, but right above this, I have a bust of Marcus Aurelius's head. Next to me, I have the Daily Stoic Journals. So I'm working on all this. Great. They're on all of it. <laughs> My issue with meditations is it's it's a very hard read. At least when I first tried to read it, it like hurt my brain and I had to like really sit there and like try to interpret what does this guy mean as he's saying these things. But I get that it's like the uh, the Bible and I've, I've gone through it, but I need to go back again. It is and it isn't. I mean, I think there are certain aspects of what he believes that just don't fit within Stoic philosophy. And so it's like you, you're constantly reading this, you know, with the modern society take on what it means to be a Stoic imprinted on someone who is talking about their life and philosophy around like thousands of years ago. And I feel like we have this like modern obsession with Stoicism. And, and this is, again, why I, I kind of got into that for a little while. I realized it actually didn't fit philosophically with a lot of the things I tend to believe. So, you know, while I can derive a lot of love and appreciation for what he did, I don't think years later, this many years later, he the entire movement devoted to it. I just think it's so interesting. But I appreciate that because I feel like for all of us, answering a call of duty on things that we believe are important to focus on problems we think you know are solvable and to achieve them in a way that's honest and that's clear i think there's a lot that we can take away in from just the philosophy of you know performing a duty and being able to bring great things to bear that you believe are important i love it let's switch gears here and let's dive a bit deeper into the company so can you just give us a high level overview of what the company does and assume that, you know, a lot of our listeners don't come from the healthcare space. You may have to dumb it down a little bit. So just give us the high level overview. It's okay. So we know how broken healthcare is, right? So there are these big like providers, they provide care for you. They often bill those services to payers, these big insurers. And then there are these big life sciences companies and device companies that make really expensive products. And all of them are trying to catch a dollar in the healthcare ecosystem, but it's the same dollar, right? The, the dollar doesn't turn into two or three dollars. Same, well, the government's dollars multiply, but that dollar gets like picked apart by different folks in the ecosystem. But at the center of care is a patient. And that patient is really working at the behest of all these three very large entities that have massive amounts of special interests that drive their carve up of the dollar and the poor patients, 
you know, basically suffers the whims of which provider they have to see and which insurer they have and what, you know, the pharma company or drug company wants for the medication that they're providing. And that's really the problem in healthcare. And so what's happened is that data and information often exist in all of these different silos. It's massively fragmented. Folks from one industry don't see what the other industry sees because they all view that as competitive advantage. And so what our mission is, is reducing the burden of disease. And the way that we accomplish this is we actually try to stitch the whole journey of a patient together across the entire U.S. So imagine that we're stitching journeys for like over 300 million patients. And we're trying to understand how does disease get expressed in this country? And through that process of understanding how patients transverse through the healthcare system, we create software that these big companies use to better understand unmet patient needs. So if you're a big pharma company, you're recruiting for a clinical trial, and your, your trial population is not very diverse, and you really need to understand where folks are that can actually benefit from your treatment, they can use Komodo software to model out the dynamics of a disease and be able to identify places where these patients exist. If you're a provider and you lose that patient after they leave your institution and you want to know how to better address the needs of your community, you can use Komodo software to do that. So what we try to do is create software for a lot of these different entities that you know help them better address the needs of their population. Take me back to 2014. I see that's when the company launched what were those early conversations like with your co-founder as you were talking about this idea? When we started the company, we picked one of these problems. And that problem was for a very specific part of the life sciences companies. These were doctors that worked inside the pharma company. They had to have conversations with other doctors in the industry. And a lot of them didn't really have a good handle on which providers were really relevant to a condition. So we took a lot of data and we built a bunch of models on top of it that predicted which providers were relevant for a given disease and a, a given area. And uh, we would surface that. And we found out that many of these companies were just talking to the wrong doctors. They were talking to a bunch of the ivory tower doctors at, at the Harvards and Yales and Stanfords of the world. They were missing a lot of the community providers that were really important to the care of the patient. And so that first piece of software, it's called Aperture. It was our first kind of foray into building software that took this incredible amount of data put an analytics and AI layer and made it a simple frontal. We call that our full stack thesis, going from data to kind of analytics and AI to a software experience. That full stack thesis was manifested in one product sold to one market buyer in one part of healthcare. And that was the journey. That's where it all got started. And, you know, we said, hey, we could build a phenomenal company that does this one thing over and over again and really crushes this market. And then over time, you know, we evolved our, our, both our beliefs and our story, but it all started with a lot of focus on one area and one problem that we knew we could solve. And in those early days, did you ever have any near-death experiences? Because now when I Google your name, you know, I can find success. You know, it talks about all the funding you've raised, you know, your valuation, all this stuff, like you're the man on Google. Are there any stories that maybe haven't been told of some of the pain you went through in the early days to get to this point? 
Well, like every other startup founder, the number of rejections far outpaces any success that you have. You have to be told no many, many more times than you're told yes. And you have to be okay with that. And then you also have to listen, figure out what you're going to incorporate and move on. The early days, we got rejected from like almost all of our leads. Uh, we were lucky to get our first customer. And we were lucky because, you know, in all of those conversations, the thing that we heard was, you know, everyone has talked about this. Everyone can do this. I've got 10 other consultants that can build this piece of software that you're bringing to bear. And we've got it. There's nothing that you have that someone else does. And it took like dozens of these conversations to find the one customer that would say, okay, I'll give this thing a shot. And for us, we could have basically not made it past that first year. Had we not secured that first one to two clients, we would have run out of money and, and that was it. And uh, we were fortunate to really be in a place where we got that first client on board. And I think it just took that one reference to then get client number two and that reference to get client number three. And I think the journey of customer acquisition in, a, in what we call a high ACB business, this is a business where you're selling a really, really expensive product, hundreds of thousands of dollars to an organization you have to, you have one shot to win them over and you have one shot to get your software right. And if you get it wrong, you can fall down the trap of like, you know, just spiraling out and running out of money. If you get it right, there's no guarantee that customer number two will want it. And that is the craziest thing about enterprise software. But one of the things that, you know, you sign up for when you do this. So we had a lot of near-death experiences that first year, a lot of a lot of no's that could have just, you know, gotten us to the place of running out of money, but we were fortunate to get that first customer. And then from there, things started working. But I will tell you, the journey has been anything but smooth in terms of what Google will tell you about, about how we've done. How long did it take for it to start to feel like things were working? Was that like one year in, two years in, three years in? When did you start to really, you know, say to your co-founder and colleagues, like, all right, we really have something here? I don't think I've said those words ever. <laughs> and I think that is the curse of being a founder is that you have constant and sustained dissatisfaction with, with how you're doing. I do think that the market has shifted towards our thesis over the years. And that is an expression of how, you know, we saw what was to come. We saw the migration from kind of like, I'd say generation one SaaS businesses, which were kind of replacements for on-prem to kind of the latest, you know, incarnation, which are, you know, infused with data and AI at the core of what they do. And it's invisible to the experience of the product. And, you know, that shift, you know, from like kind of classic CRM types of fast plays to what I would describe as data enabled or data fused AI applications and kind of a new AI driven stack is, is a change that we've observed over the last several years. And I think in healthcare, the same thing is happening. You know, we're finding that folks don't need to acquire tons of data and warehouse and run through a lot of IT processes, but they can actually get to an answer on how to help a population of patients very efficiently and very quickly. And so that thesis has played out well. And so for that reason, I would say that, you know, being right about that has helped us kind of continue to scale the business in a good way. But I always find myself believing that we can do better as a team, at the company, and that we haven't made it yet. And we won't have made it until we're pulling a billion dollars plus in revenue. And 
Now, now we can see that. We can see that you know more clearly than we could a few years ago. But we do believe that there's still a lot of work for us of the team to to get to that level of sustainability. Early on, when you were pushing this thesis out to market, did you have any people in the industry who didn't believe in the thesis or kind of pushed back on it or didn't think it was possible? Did you face anything like that early on? All the time. What we do is inherently threatening to large IT teams in these big companies. It's threatening to legions of analysts who, you know, are starting to learn that their world can be replaced with with generative AI. It was really threatening to a lot of consultancies who said, well, we make so much money answering this question in a bespoke way every time. Why would you ever create software that could automate this? And I think that is the problem with driving technology in a new category. You're saying a piece of software can replace you know, a bunch of data and infrastructure spend, a lot of people's jobs that depend on making these things really, really complex. And a lot of people who answer bespoke questions, but that I can automate because the questions are the same. They just have to do with the different population of patients. And if I can find ways to bring that scale to the problem, then maybe I don't need, you know, to hire legions of people to, to answer these questions. And I think that being told no had a lot as well to do with individuals you know, self-interest. And when you work in a large and sell to a large enterprise business, you have to get good at bringing the people who really benefit from this. Like the business owner that has to get an answer fast, doesn't have two years to wait for their IT team to replicate our success. They need to move now. And you put the pressure on a lot of the in-house teams by, by bringing a, a buyer to bear that has the goals that you do, you can do a lot to manage that dynamic, but it requires a different way of playing the game. I think that a very simplistic, let me just sell this buyer, they get happy, they pay $10 for this thing. That's a very different game that we have to, to be great at. And I think that's something that we discovered in the process is that for all the people that say no, you have to find people who say yes, who can also you know run things up the chain of command in a way that's more effective and allows them to make that decision. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host, and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now, back to today's episode. Now, switching gears here a little bit. So doing my research online, publicly what I found was most recently the company was valued at over $3 billion. So you don't have to confirm or deny that, but can we at least agree that it's over a billion dollars? Yes, <laughs> we can agree on that. Okay. So I think every founder dreams of building a billion dollar company. If they're in tech and if they're being honest, I think some don't say that, but I think if you're in tech raising venture capital, you want to build a billion dollar company. So for you, was that your intention when you started from day one? Were you swinging for a home run to say, I'm going to build a big company here? Or did you kind of stumble your way into it and then say, you know, later on in the journey, okay, this is going to be big. When Webb and I just started the business and my co-founder is incredible, also built the company with me. They were saying time in life, you know, we both, he has three kids, I have two kids. We kind of built it after having professional careers. We were both mid-career when we, when we started the business and, and we had very similar outlook on life. And we sat down one day and we said, okay, when you 
hit a certain personal number to finalize it or retire, what would, what would that number be? We both wrote a number on the napkin. And both of our numbers were in the seven-figure range. And we're like, if I had this much money, I if I had this much money, we would be happy. And we would be right off to the sunset and say that we, we accomplished major things. And what's amazing is that as we went through the building of Komodo, we realized, one, that you know, as we kind of got to a number that we were very personally satisfied with, it did nothing to change our like desire to change healthcare. And I think this is one of the things that, you know, we didn't walk in saying, well, I want to be valued at this or that. We had a very strong anti-unicorn philosophy. We never talked about valuation. We never talked about fundraising. In fact, prior to 2019, you really found nothing about Komodo. We just didn't talk. Like we never gave interviews. We never talked about what we were doing because we were like, we just want to build a business. And then the world kind of got obsessed with like unicorn valuations between 19 and 21, and then everything changed to kind of by two. So this whole cycle of life, you know, we never played into it. And we, we focused a little, we're just going to build a business and we're going to be happy with how the business does. And at every point, we kept on finding ourselves believing we could do better than what was out there. And this is the founder dissatisfaction that just gets you going. Every day, we say, look, we can do better than what the market's providing. We can do better than what even we're doing today. We can, we can improve it. And that dissatisfaction just keeps going and going and going. And so over the years, neither of us would say like, okay, you know, have we met our retirement goal for us personally? Sure, maybe. But like, are we anywhere near where we want to be in the journey? We're not. You know, I believe this company should be doing a billion plus in revenue. And like valuation is completely irrelevant. And it's not about hitting some number. It's about how much you know revenue are generating, how much profit are you generating, and how are you rewarding investors for being on this journey with you that believe in this. And so we don't set any valuation metric because that's the whims of the market. What's not the whims of the market, though, is how your business performs because that is a reflection on the whole category. It's a reflection on how you compete within that category. And so for us, the belief is really rooted in this idea that we can build very important, a very scale business, one step at a time. And so that's the work that we're doing. And we continue to have that thesis. And I would say, Brett, every day that you know has passed from our Series A to our Series B to our Series C, we kept on saying, like, we are the best custodians of this business and we believe there's more to be had. And if you can answer those two questions affirmatively that you believe you like a dollar capital investing in your business is better than a dollar of capital going to someone else and that you are a great steward of that business, then you should continue on this journey. And we've continued to say the answer to those two questions is yes. Or that's why we've ended up here, as opposed to have thought that this was either by design or something we planned for or didn't plan for, we're surprised to find out. I think it's a, a, a reflection on the day-to-day of running this business. And something else I want to ask about is, you know, I guess some of the not so good news that I read, and that was about layoffs, which of course weren't, you know, only for Komodo. Every big tech company has gone through that. Every small company has gone through that. Basically, everyone in tech has gone through it. So you're really not alone there. But if you could maybe just you know, take us through what you learned in that process and what it was like for you as you know founder and CEO or co-founder and CEO to go through that and have to you know, deliver that news and navigate that world. Can you just provide any insights there? Yeah, I think as a founder, it is one of the hardest things, if not the hardest things that I've ever had to do in the business. It's looking at employees who have done nothing wrong. They've performed 
done great work for your business and through just the realization that you cannot afford to keep that and you make these trade-offs and it sucks. And I will tell you, there's not a founder, you know, out there that doesn't, you know, that, or that relishes in doing that because the company is a reflection in some cases of your capability, your knowledge and your expertise. And you put yourself in that position and Webb and I take ownership of that. We, we stand in front of our team. We apologize. We apologize to the people that we let go and we say, this is us, not you. And the decisions that that changed, you know, that we made, you know, we're based on, on changing in market. You know, we don't, the capital costs more. We can't pursue everything that we'd love to pursue. We can't take bets on things that are things that in a free capital environment we would do. And the consequence of that is, you know, us having to shut those projects down, us having to have those conversations with people who we love and care about. And it breaks you. It makes you feel like, you know, you did something wrong and I would say our crime is not being able to see around corners uh, to allow that you know burn rate to creep up higher than we wanted. That's on us, and we take ownership of it. But on the good side, you know we see so many dragons banding together. Dragons are what we refer to as our employees, but banding together to say like you know how do we continue on this mission? You know without folks that we've had to say goodbye to. We see them helping them get jobs. We celebrate them on LinkedIn. It's like we offer an opportunity for folks, and even as our business gets better, to keep a relationship going with both the people and the company. And I think that's just uh, an important principle with how you treat people. And then more importantly, you never know what the future brings. And as a result of that, you keep yourself open to opportunity and to you know changing as both the market changes and as the company's dynamics uh, evolve. Now. When it comes to your superpower, what do you think your superpower is? I'm sure you're skilled at many things. If you had to choose one, what's like one thing that maybe you wouldn't say you're the best at, but your co-founder would, your colleagues, your friends, they'd be like, yep, he's the best in the world at that. What is it? <laughs> I have a very arcane skill, which is that I have a very deep appreciation for the way that healthcare data gets generated and how it flows across the system. And by understanding that, I've been able to help the team develop a deeper appreciation for how we construct what we call our healthcare map. And we love calling it the healthcare map because it's a map of human health and outcome. Uh, we want to trace the patient journey to do it in a way that's obviously de-identified and you know, it's designed for studying these problems at a public health uh, level. It takes a certain kind of obsession with understanding is what I'm seeing real or is it biased in some way? And how do I then stitch together different events and how do I correct for the bias that exists in the data? This is something that I happen to be obsessed with. And it's one of the things that has allowed us as a business to really get into this conversation, I think even at a national level, on how we improve healthcare. So I think my team would say that I have a, a skill in really getting this and driving this understanding and awareness across the company so we can all be ambassadors uh, reducing the burden of disease. And you've mentioned the word category a few times. And given this is Category Visionaries podcast, we like talking about categories. Let's dive a little deeper there. So to you, is this a category creation play? Are you creating a, a net new category here? It's a great question. I would say that we are are actually changing the business model in an existing category. And what I mean by that is right now, there's a massive amount of 
healthcare data selling. Sounds terrible. Like these big companies buy lots and lots of anonymized data on all of us, like you and me, Brett. Like there's lots of um, that data gets purchased. They hire lots of consultancies. They spend many billions of dollars on that. And when they spend billions of dollars on actually software and instrumentation and APIs that allow them to do something with the data and the consulting spend. And we look at that category and we say, you know, even in the US, there's 20 plus billion dollars that has been spent here. Now we're coming in with this full stack thesis. We go from the data to the AI to the software. We sell the software in more of a classic enterprise SaaS model, but it's infusing both analytics and data and how it, it operates. And that is in this $20 billion plus category, but its entire way of operating is totally different than how people procure things today. So even though it's an existing category, the nature of how things get purchased, you know, the offering and how it competes, and as well who the buyer is and the user is, is different than the way that these layers are purchased or procured today. And that's what's different about it. And we think by taking a totally fresh view of this category and changing the business model here, we can return a ton of value to our companies that are spending way too much to procure these layers separately and return value to patients by creating outcomes that are better for them. So it has to us a, a mission component as well as uh, the ability to reduce inefficiency in this space. What did you do tactically and strategically to evangelize this new category? And, you know, obviously, whenever you're doing something very different, it requires people to think in a different way. And it's hard to get people to think in a different way. So what were you deploying and what were you doing to to pull that off? Well, you have to find the evangelist. I believe any product that is successful in the market has to find the people who love it, who want to use it, who advocate for it, who bring it to their colleagues. And we have you know, folks within these large enterprise healthcare companies that love Komodo. They go to bat for Komodo, they speak about Komodo, and they evangelize us in their own companies. And that's the start of a conversation when, you know, somebody on the marketing team that's using Komodo software to deeply understand the journey of a patient is then telling their colleagues in analytics, is telling their IT team, is telling their manager that we use Komodo to actually identify this unmet need and we think that if we were to go address it, it would have this kind of impact on our outcomes as a business. That to us is exciting. And those evangelists have helped us actually navigate the complexities of these large organizations that tend to be very siloed and layered in the way that they operate. So building that evangelism is number one and delivering a phenomenal product that continues to improve and grow over time is number two. And I think, you know, in our space, I always joke that it's really not great products that win. It's just less sucky products that win. I think the reality is that like it's the evangelism around your product that allows you to have the right to have the next conversation, to push the next you know sale. And I think that is something that makes a huge difference in enterprise SaaS in the space, but one that we have capitalized on as we've scaled the business. How important has founder branding been for you? When I was doing my research, I saw that there were just a lot of podcast interviews. You've done a lot of media interviews, and it seems like you've really built up a brand around yourself as you know the founder of this company. Was that very, very intentional on your end, or did you just you know is this naturally what you're good at? Do you like being an evangelist? Like, where did that come from? I'm, I guess is what I'm trying to figure out. 
my friends and folks who know me will say that I can speak passionately about the things that I care about. And so, you know, naturally love to talk about things that I'm really passionate about. I'm passionate about our mission. I'm passionate about our values, our team. And, and for me, this is what gets me going. It's why I continue to do this every day. It's what, what brings me joy. But I do think that, you know, we kept ourselves so silent, you know, between 2014 and 2018. This is my advice. Anyone that runs a seed or a series A or series B company in the enterprise space, consumer is a little bit different, but in the enterprise space, just shut up. Like nobody wants to really listen to you or hear it from you because you haven't built anything yet. And even today, I feel very shy because I feel like we're still on early on this journey. I'm still in ending one and, you know, I'm talking more about it, but I still feel like we're so early. But what changed in 2019 was not like some, you know, big marker of company success, but actually the market started to shift. And the realization that so much data was being generated in healthcare that was underutilized started to become a story and it became a story also because of COVID. And with COVID, we saw a huge public health shift towards understanding data in healthcare. I mean, Healthcare data is like the least sexy thing until COVID hit. Now, all of a sudden, everyone's quoting stats, you know, like, oh, you know, last week, you know, we saw the you know, infection rate increased by a factor of, you know, 0.37. I mean, things like that were just so incredible to hear the average person quoting stats about, you know, COVID to other members of their family, to their friends. And so suddenly there's this national dialogue that encompasses healthcare data. Like, wow, like this is very fascinating that we now all of a sudden care about epidemiology. Well, do we not care when cancer was killing so many people, when heart disease kills like so many more people every day? Well, no, we we just we never really had it in our consciousness that you're far more likely to just die of a heart attack than than anything else. And, and I think that's one of the problems is that this thing only enters, it takes a pandemic to raise its consciousness in society. But once it does, it changes fundamentally the dialogue on how important data in healthcare is to solving these big, massive problems we have in the system. And now I finally feel like there's a recognition, there, the, the government's behind it, private industry's behind it, and there's a belief that if we were to better utilize data, we can improve outcomes. And I think that's now firmly in everyone's mind, whereas a few years ago, it was just not. And I think that's been a big boon for, for this change and why we're you know in a position to actually talk about why this matters. And when COVID started unfolding, did you and your founder have to debate that? Like, did you guys debate, should we go make some noise now? Should we go and you know, be part of this public conversation or should we just stay quiet and you know, stay behind the scenes and just focus on building the product? Yeah, we found something really interesting. So in March of 2020, there was a massive decline in hospital visits and you know, kind of patients going to see their doctor. When things started to reemerge, you saw two very interesting phenomena happening. And, and this is now in in kind of May, June time, number one, you saw the rise of virtualized care and, and that, you know, very understood people were now like tons of infrastructure was built in those two months and people were now, you know, capitalizing on virtual visits to their providers for any number of categories that historically they would have gone in to see. But the second thing that was happening was that there were profound disparities in access to care. The same populations that are marginalized in like real world care are marginalized in online care because they don't have either. They don't have, you know, the latest version of a technology that could see a doctor on demand. And 
they also don't have, you know, the wherewithal necessarily the knowledge of who to go to and and how to 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 get that appointment secured because they don't have the resources around them. Maybe they're not insured. Maybe their insurance doesn't really want to talk to them to because they're happy that they're making lots of money that nobody's like utilizing the healthcare system. There's a lot of very perverse incentives that are happening around COVID, and so we saw this emerging. And for us, this was not about oh, this is a story to tell society. This is actually important for us to shine a light on. And we're doing this incredible work kind of looking at race and ethnicity around other social determinants of health and, and saying, where are we seeing disparities? And how are those disparities playing out in the real world? And wow, we can share this. And we started to do research in this area. We shared briefs. We shared a lot of this out and, and folks started to get very interested in, in what we could do about it. And that's what we love. We love creating a dialogue around problems that are actually very addressable if we knew they existed. If we knew that certain communities were not going to get vaccinated, we could send resources there. If we knew folks were not returning to the healthcare system and needed to be screened for ovarian cancer or breast cancer or colorectal cancer, we could actually get test kits to them. And this to us is really the mission in action. And so for us, talking about these things were very natural. It's very natural for us to say, hey, look, we see this and this is a problem. And I think as people started to recognize that, our confidence in sharing more of these stories only grew. And so I think what you're seeing is a byproduct of us realizing that there is important knowledge that society should have, and then just really leaning into it. And I think because of that, you know, we've seen an uptick in, in Komodo being mentioned, but it's only because we're really sharing things that we believe ought to be shared with society and let, and let folks decide if they think it's interesting or not. Makes a lot of sense. Now, based on everything that you've learned so far, let's say you were to start a company again today, what would be the number one piece of advice you'd give to yourself? I think I had way too much impatience in my early days. I know founders you know, thrive on being impatient. Generally speaking, that's what drives an action. But I do think that in the early days, I wanted to drive a change faster than society would let me change it. And I think I would have told myself to just calm down like massively and go deeper in my meditation and yoga practice and like spend more time just reflecting on things. And I think I could have benefited from a lot of that advice in the early days. I, I joke and I tell people I was a terrible CEO in the beginning and, you know, web confirms that and pretty much everyone I knew has confirmed that. I'm better now. It doesn't mean I'm great. It means I'm better now. And the realization that, you know, there are certain things that it takes to build a company there are certain, you know, conversations that have to have it. You're, you're, you're culturally building the, the blocks that make a company great. Take the time to do that because whether your company, you know, survives a year or a decade, it's those building blocks that make the biggest difference to your future success. And I felt like in some ways we did that, but I felt I was always charging faster than I should have at that time. And I would have told myself, hey, reflect more, take more time and use it to really think about how you want to build a team that you believe will, you know, take this problem and address it at scale. So that's the single biggest teacher advice I could have given my younger self. And as we talked about there in the intro, you've raised big money here. So it's over 400 million in funding so far. What have you learned about fundraising that would be interesting for founders to hear? Because I'm sure there's been a lot of lessons along the way. What would be like that top lesson? Well, in the early days, Webb and I were never obsessed with valuation. And I think we went into this valuation obsessive culture kind of in the 2018, 2019 frame, and, and that persisted through last year. 
we were all about what capital do you need in order to hit our next milestone? And we wrote this really wonderful document as a seed company called our Series A Hypotheses. Again, this is a very good nerdy scientific thing to do because your hypotheses document is what you have to believe will be true for you to raise your next round. And I think if you're really clear on that with yourself, with your co-founding team, with your investors, you then can reflect on that. Every three months, every six months, you could ask yourself, does this investment help us test this hypothesis or not? That's effectively what you're doing at the seed stage. You're testing a series of hypotheses on what it takes to actually build something that's relevant in a given category or create, as you guys just have described, a new category. And when you continue to come back to that, it gets you very, very aligned on your purpose. And when you enter A, you write your series B hypotheses and B to C. And keeping focus for us on that was very important. And so I always tell founders, in order for you to have the clarity of purpose to walk into an investor, there has to be some consistency and the ability to realize your vision over time and be very reflecting on what may have changed in your hypotheses between those two times. Because effectively what they're betting on is that you will continue to find ways to grow and address the issues that you're seeing in the market and you know make those changes constantly that help you kind of take the business to the next level. So I, I love telling folks that pay attention to that, spend the time on that, find that alignment with your co-founders and your investors, and you will be rewarded for doing that because you will have a far more clear and honest path to the next phase of your growth. What gives you energy and what motivates you? Because you're what? You're almost a decade into this journey so far. And a few minutes ago, you said first inning, that this was you know early days or the first inning of the company. What do you do to you know, sustain that energy and to be motivated and to you know, have that way of thinking that you could be 10 years in and it's still early days for the company? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. I mean, look, I'm, a, I'm, I'm old. I'm 45 now. And, you know, in, in, in the startup world, people love their 20 something year old founders. But, you know, for us, Web and I were both mid career, as I mentioned, when we started this journey. And we both have boundless amounts of energy for, for our mission. So I'll tell you three things that I love. Number one is when we find this healthcare disparities and when we identify them and we get folks changing their behavior, these big enterprise healthcare companies with lots of special interests, and we can get them to pay attention to, you know, recruiting more black patients for clinical trials or taking this underserved community and, and really devoting the resources to address their needs. We've done good for the world. And we believe that reducing the burn disease at the center of everything that we do is so critical to why we're doing this, why we do this today. It's why I'll, you know, if I have the pleasure of serving tomorrow while I'll still be doing this because it's something that I believe in super strongly. Um, number two, Komodo has values that we share with our team. We have four core values. Those values are the same today as they were in nine years ago. And for us personally, we get a chance to to build a team that you know has consistent team the way we operate and, and what we're building towards all we believe. And then finally I would say our team, you know, our, our amazing executive leadership team, they've all done incredible things in their career. They've brought a lot of that learning to scaling a business like ours that is in a very, you know, old school category. People don't wake up every day and say, how long we to build a healthcare IT business, you know, as, as, as the category wants to be called. 
And you look at it and you say, wow, I believe every day that I can do something uh, with a group of people that are using to further our mission uh, in the way that business to what our value. So I think all of that keeps me, keeps me going. And final question, since I know we're almost up on time here, over time, what's the three to five year vision for the company? What do you want Komodo to look like three to five years from today? That's a great question. We are, like I said, in first inning. And what does that first inning really mean? We're starting to get a conscious awareness that there's all this healthcare data that's been generated that's poorly characterized and understood. We've built this thesis of creating great software that allows people to richly interrogate it. My vision of the future is that the Komodo platform is the back end of everything, of every study, of every piece of academic research, all the way to the way that the government makes decisions on how it addresses the healthcare of the population. That every institution, from a provider to a payer to a pharma company, is sharing that data back so we can improve healthcare outcomes in a way that doesn't competitively disadvantage them, but also then on the other side, and it helps them improve their business and. That sharing and that ability to see a benefit from that is felt by all folks in the system. And then that at the end of the day, people live longer, healthier, and happier lives because the industry is working for them as opposed to the industry is working for itself with patients as a consequence of them. And I think that is, to me, the one change that the Komodo platform and me as a business are successful in our mission that we will see happen both for society as well as business company. Amazing. I love it. Well, we are up on time, so we do have to wrap. Before we do, if people want to follow along with your journey as you build and execute on this vision, where should they go? KomodoHealth.com. It's our website and has everything you need to know, uh, the content and, and thoughts that we're putting out to market. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk about some of the lessons that you've learned along the way and to just really provide a behind the scenes look at you know what's happening at your company. It's been a blast. I've really enjoyed it. It's going to be a hit with our audience. So thanks so much for taking the time. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Brett. I really appreciate the time. All right. Keep in touch.